DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, presents Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, take action with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher is a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, a religious community dedicated to retreats and spiritual formation according to the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He is featured on several series found on the Eternal Word television network. He is also author of numerous books on the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, all published by the Crossroads Publishing Company. This particular series is based in part on Chapter 4 of Setting Captives Free, Personal Reflections on Ignatian Discernment of Spirits. Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, take action. With Father Timothy Gallagher, I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Now, in Rules 10 and 11, Ignatius addresses a person who is in consolation. But his goal is the same, and that is to help us deal with the trial of spiritual desolation. So in Rules 5 through 9, Ignatius speaks to the person right now in the heaviness and darkness of desolation and says, here are a set of things you can do. Don't make changes to your proposals, adopt the means of Rule 6, consider these various thoughts, etc. In Rule 10, what Ignatius says is, even before the desolation begins, when you are experiencing a time of joy and God's closeness, a time of spiritual consolation, there is a way of living such times of spiritual consolation which will make it easier to get through desolation when eventually it returns, as, as we can serenely recognize that it will. This up and down is just, of course, with all kinds of individual nuances for each of us, but this is normal spiritual experience, this alternation. Tenth Rule Let the one who is in consolation think how he will conduct himself in desolation, which will come after taking new strength for that time. So there is a way of living the spiritual consolation in which we take in strength that will help us get through desolation when it returns with greater ease. The biblical image that I use is Joseph in the book of Genesis and the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine. In the seven years of plenty, Joseph stores up grain that he does not need, but which will be critical for survival in the years of famine to follow. It's that kind of dynamic. So the desolation never comes simply with the shock of surprise. We're we're ready for it, and we know how to deal with it. It reminds me of something I've heard that Mother Teresa said, St. Teresa of Calcutta, that she, in her prayer, would sometimes ask the Lord, I am in consolation, but hold back just a little for those times I'm in desolation. That's another way of saying the same thing. So that as I experience the joy of the spiritual consolation, a part of the overall experience is taking in strength for the desolation to follow. That's a lovely link between saints. I think it's important when we look at Rule 10, this is the the, the rule where Ignatius explicitly addresses the other kind of action that we're to take. Be aware, understand, take action, accept to accept God's work through spiritual consolation, that we feel a great freedom and know that that's our principal call. And principal call in time of spiritual consolation is not to prepare for, for spiritual desolation when it returns. The principal call is simply to rejoice in, be open to, 
or to use Ignatius' own lovely verb, to receive, recibir, to receive the joy, the light, the grace that God has given. But there is an additional good also that we can experience through the joy of spiritual consolation if we also are looking ahead to spiritual desolation and preparing for it. Could I ask this, Father Gallagher, in all care, to be sensitive to the experience of those in desolation, because there's nothing fun about desolation. I mean, there, there's not something that we should desire or want. But in what you've just described, in, in some ways, it can be a gift. And so maybe for those who have gone through this experience, and you realize that it, it may be a, an opportunity to grow deeper, or that God is asking us to go in a different direction, that not to rail so much in fury that I'm I'm in desolation, but in that deepening of your prayer to, to see that possibly this is something that the Father is offering us um, in some way. I mean, it's a different type of paradigm in which to view it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And that's, I'd say, really the whole goal of this set of rules, setting captives free. Now, when we speak of spiritual desolation, as we're doing, and we're going to focus uh, shortly on Ignatius Rule 4, I think it's really important to say that Rule 4 is not about spiritual desolation, but about setting captives free from spiritual desolation. That's the only reason for writing that rule. That's the only reason for this set of rules in which 5, 6, 7, so on, Ignatius repeatedly refers to spiritual desolation. This is about hope. This is about freedom. This is about knowing that you don't have to live in captivity to that discouragement of desolation. God never gives the spiritual desolation. That's always the work of the enemy, which is why the only appropriate response is always to reject it. But God in his loving providence will permit the enemy to visit us with experiences of spiritual desolation for the reasons that we just saw in looking at Rule 9 and there are other reasons as well. But yes, it's very much a dispensation of love in God's providence that permits the man at 10 o'clock or the woman at 3 o'clock or any of us to go through spiritual desolation because if we know what the call is in time of spiritual desolation, never simply passively to endure it. Key point behind rule 6. But always to change ourselves intensely, as Ignatius says, with hope and with energy and using the tools that he supplies to resist and reject with God's grace the spiritual desolation, that's when hope comes. That's when that helpless sense of uh, why is this happening, and I speak now also with great reverence, because many of us will have experienced this at times. See, Chris, this is what keeps me writing and traveling to speak about this or even doing what we're doing right now, is because when people learn that there is a way to freedom, that we're not called to live in captivity. Jesus did not come that we might live as captives to the discouraging lies of the enemy. He came, as he said in Luke 4 in the synagogue, to proclaim liberty to captives to let the oppressed go free. And that's what I love about this, is that it not only, I would say, um, encourages, exhorts, I guess that's the word I want, it not only exhorts people to take steps to come forth from the spiritual desolation, but it equips them. 
It gives them the tools that they need. And people feel that, you know, like the well-equipped parent, these kinds of books. This is the well-equipped discerner, you know, that you get uh, that you get in this set of rules. So in time of consolation, Ignatius says, take in strength for desolation. And in the our earlier uh, set of talks on this and in uh, the book on this, I go through in some detail various steps that a person can take. Rule 11 is the final rule in this set in which Ignatius speaks of spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation, and as it were, ties it all together and paints what I would say in a metaphor, the portrait of the mature person of discernment. Eleventh rule. Let one who is consoled seek to humble himself and lower himself as much as he can, thinking of how little he is capable in the time of desolation without grace or consolation. On the contrary, let one who is in desolation think he can do much with God's sufficient grace to resist all his enemies, taking strength in his Creator and Lord. So the person in the joy of consolation is neither is not naively and carelessly high. And this addresses something that you raised earlier, Chris. This is the person in the joy of consolation. This prayer is so rich, I can get up an hour earlier and have more time to do it. I can join this group in the parish. Uh, I can take uh, these new steps in reading scripture and so on to the point where with goodwill, but with with a lack of a kind of wisdom. Uh, and I say that with a little hesitation there is because I want to speak reverently here too. We've all, I've been there. We've all been there at times. Uh, what Ignatius wants to save us from here is that overextending of ourselves that leads to some kind of uh, an undoing of the whole thing, which can be painful and which can cause a lot of discouragement and maybe a pulling back. Eleventh rule. Let one who is consoled seek to humble himself and lower himself as much as he can, thinking of how little he is capable in the time of desolation without grace or consolation. On the contrary, let one who is in desolation think he can do much with God's sufficient grace to resist all his enemies, taking strength in his Creator and Lord. So, in time of spiritual consolation, remain humble. And in time of desolation, remain trusting. Humble in consolation, trusting in desolation. That's how we go forward in the spiritual life. And that's where Ignatius is leading us in all of these rules. Isn't it remarkable that in our last several centuries that there have been mystical experiences and I'm speaking of St. Margaret Mary Alcott, as well as St. Faustina, who experienced a, an incredible message from Christ, who would say, remember, trust me, sacred heart, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. And, and at times in their period where it seemed like the world was in chaos, and yet here we are today, and it seems like in almost in every age, there is this temptation to not trust and to, and I, <laughs> I know we want to be very sensitive folks, but if, and I know this is strong language, but to wallow in desolation sometimes because we don't have that trust. Because we don't have the trust, and I would say also maybe because 
we need the kind of wisdom that Ignatius is supplying, this practical, down-to-earth, daily, in the kitchen, in the workplace, in the parish, dealing with children, dealing with finances, wisdom that helps us find a path through the discouragement of spiritual desolation. Two things have come to mind as you've said that uh, that classic phrase from Charles Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And I think we all feel that. There's language that echoes that in the document of Vatican II on the pastoral council, a pastoral uh, constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, the joys and the hopes, and all the ups and downs. And then also a lovely sermon from St. Augustine in which he asks the question, is it true as we hear, and so we're in the fifth century now, is it true as we so often hear people saying that our days are worse than the centuries that have come before us? I love that because that's such a real question uh, for us today, and we can feel that very much. And his answer to that is that the, the reason why our age seems worse to us and preceding ages seem better to us is because we weren't there then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? His mm -hmm. basic message is a message of hope that not to give in to that, that sense. And that, I, I suppose I remember that sermon so much because I can feel, as I think many of us do, as we look at what's happening around us, we can feel like this is the worst of times. And I don't want to in any way not recognize the real problems and growing problems that are there in various ways. But the call in all of it is the message that St. John Paul II gave so beautifully. I think we've talked about this in other conversations, that as the biography says, to be witnesses to hope, to recognize that the key fundamental truth of our life in this world is the redemption. Is John Paul II's classic phrase that the power in the cross and resurrection of Christ, the redemption, is greater than any evil we can or should fear. Yes, there are evils we can fear. Yes, there are evils we should fear. But there is a power in this world greater than any of them. And that is the power of the cross and resurrection of Christ. And he quotes from the Gospel of John, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that redemption, the Redeemer, is alive always, daily, now in, in the world. I think it's very helpful to come back to that as a fundamental reason for what uh, theologian Henri de Lubac calls essential hope. We have signs of hope when maybe there's an activity in the parish that goes better than we'd hoped, or we see our children taking steps to return to their faith, or in many beautiful ways God may give us signs of hope. But something deeper than that is what he calls essential hope, and that's exactly what St. John Paul II is speaking about here, the knowledge that the deepest truth of the world and of our lives is redemption, is the power of the cross and resurrection of Christ that's greater than any evil. To keep linking things that we've talked about before, this is exactly what Tolkien is getting at in his word, Eucatastrophe. The fundamental message of the Lord of the Rings, which is that even as evil grows in power and the forces of evil uh, of good are dispersed and weakened, and we fight what uh, Lady Galadriel in the book calls the long defeat, that the final word is the eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, which is the resurrection after the defeat of Good Friday, and which is the fundamental truth uh, of our life. So to live out of that is the right place 
and anything that helps us. I would say in my own life, over the 27 years of uh, St. John Paul II's pontificate, he became Pope when I was a deacon over in Rome and I had the chance to serve as deacon uh, three times, actually, in St. Peter's for him. Um, and just drinking in this man, and then over the years, reading his encyclicals and listening to his talks, gradually I began to see what he meant. If you live with your consciousness essentially focused, not on the newspapers, but on the deepest truth, yes, we need to know what's going on in the world, but that's not the deepest truth. The deepest truth is Christ came into this world, lived, suffered his passion, went through death, and rose again, victorious over all his enemies. And in that grace, we can live. So well, I think what Ignatius is doing to come back to uh, the rules here is not only encouraging us to do that, but saying, here are some very concrete things you can do in the kitchen, when you're praying in church, when you're driving to work, when you're struggling with failures or things that didn't go well, when you're rejoicing in things that um, reveal to you God's faithful love, in the stuff of life, here are some things you can do that are going to help you move toward hope. The following rules, he even gets into some of the nuances that can challenge us in that being aware and understanding, and then to be able to take action. Mm-hmm. As I said before, it's very important that we see Rule 4 on desolation in, in context. It isn't the whole picture. It's actually a very small part of the picture compared to the work of God through spiritual consolation. But it's the main difficulty for most of us, and that's why it's so important. Well, could you say it's it's almost like, and I don't mean to be so simplistic, but it's almost like riding a bike. When you first get on, you're going to have your stumbles. You're going to have your your problems. And before you're steady at writing it, and I, I cannot help but think of the wise counsel of Venerable Bruno Lanteri that you just begin again. And the answer to all of it, and, the, and he is one that drew from these rules. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's take that metaphor. Uh, let's say there's, here's a young boy with his father, and his father is trying to teach his son to ride a bike. And here is another father with his son of the same age trying to teach him how to ride the bike. The first son is convinced that he can do it. He may fall a few times, but he's going to ride a bike. The second son is convinced that he can't do it. He may fall a few times, and that will prove to him that I can't do it, and he'll never ride a bike. The difference and these are exactly the things Ignatius is getting at in the rules, is knowing that we can resist and reject spiritual desolation with God's grace and with the employing of the tools that Ignatius is giving. So if, if we know that, then uh, we're going to get there with God's grace. We'll return to Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, take action with Father Timothy Gallagher, in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. 
Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these videos, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, take action with Father Timothy Gallagher. In the last three rules, Ignatius shifts his focus just slightly from spiritual desolation to the other basic tactic of the enemy, which is temptation. Temptation is a deceptive suggestion of the enemy. Why don't you let your prayer go till later? You can let yourself see that. It doesn't have to get too far out of hand, and so forth. And what Ignatius does in the last three rules is to highlight in each of them one quality of how the enemy works in his temptations so that being aware of this, understanding it, being able to name it, we know how to take action to reject it. And in Rule 12, Ignatius encourages us when the enemy first brings his temptation, the man at 10 o'clock, nothing in him wants to reach out for the Bible as he usually does at this time, everything in him wants to reach out for the smartphone in a way that will be to use Ignatian vocabulary, low and earthly. Obviously, there's a good use of phones and so on, but we all know what we're describing here. Twelfth rule. The enemy acts like a woman in being weak when faced with strength and strong and faced with weakness. For, as it is proper to a woman when she is fighting with some man to lose heart and to flee when the man confronts her firmly, and, on the contrary, If the man begins to flee, losing heart, the anger, vengeance, and ferocity of the woman grow greatly and know no bounds. In the same way it is proper to the enemy to weaken and lose heart, fleeing, and causing his temptations when the person who is exercising himself in spiritual things confronts the temptations of the enemy firmly, doing what is diametrically opposed to them, and, on the contrary, If the person who is exercising himself begins to be afraid and lose heart in suffering the temptations, there is no beast so fierce on the face of the earth as the enemy of human nature in following out his damnable intention with such growing malice. What Ignatius uh, counsels him with great insistence is stand firm right in the very beginning of the temptation. When is it easiest for this man to resist that temptation or any of us 
uh, one of us finds um, churning thoughts of anger toward another person just beginning to arise, or churning thoughts of anxiety uh, just beginning to arise. When is it easiest to resist these? Right in the very beginning. The image that I use is, here is a high mountain covered with snow, and here at the mountain peak, a snowball is just getting started. You can put out a finger and stop it. Now, the listeners can't see it, but I'm extending my my right hand with the finger extended in an upward direction. You know, this gesture has become, I sometimes use it in spiritual direction, because when people smile, they know exactly what it means. Uh, you can put out a finger and stop it as it's just getting started, but let it get halfway down the mountainside, gaining mass and speed, it'll run you over. So if the man does pick up the smartphone and one touch becomes 50 and 100 and 200, it will get harder and harder and heavier and heavier, and it will be more and more difficult to resist the temptation. I love Rule 12 because if we employ it, it will save us an enormous amount of suffering. The snowball will never even get started. And so all of those heavy struggles need not happen. It's the difference between the way Eve responds to the tempter in Genesis 3. Uh, did God really say it? Well, God said, God, and, and she engages in the dialogue and the snowball is rolling down the side of the mountain and she succumbs. The difference between that and the way Jesus responds to the tempter in the desert, command that these stones become bread. It is written, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God shall man live. Jesus' response is immediate, it's total, it's definitive, and the temptation is over. So that the movement toward that response is the gift of Rule 12. In Rule 13, Ignatius wants us to see that the enemy will encourage us to keep hidden in our hearts the various burdens that he places there, the doubts, the fears, how can God love someone like me when this has been part of my... Probably here more than anywhere else in the rules, I speak with a very great reverence because Rule 13 touches can touch very deep places in our... But touch them to liberate us so that we no longer are held captive in these places. And the encouragement is to speak with a wise and competent spiritual person. The image that Ignatius uses is of the false lover attempting to seduce and use for a selfish purpose an upright woman. His whole urging is to her, keep quiet about this, don't say anything. Because he knows that in the moment, let's say the wife speaks with her husband or the daughter with her father, the whole game is up. All she has to do is speak about it, and he is defeated. Which really reveals, as Ignatius says in Rule 13, or yeah, the, 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 in Rule 12, the essential weakness of the enemy. Words alone can defeat this enemy. The right words said to the right person. Thirteenth Rule Likewise, he conducts himself as a false lover in wishing to remain secret and not being revealed. For a dissolute man who, speaking with evil intention, makes dishonorable advances to a daughter of a good father or a wife or a good husband, wishes his words and persuasions to be secret, and the contrary displeases him very much. When the daughter reveals to her father or the wife to her husband his false wounds and depraved intention, because he easily perceives that he will not be able to succeed with the undertaking begun. In the same way, when the enemy of human nature brings his wiles and persuasions to the just soul, he wishes and desires that they be received and kept in secret. 
But when one reveals them to one's good confessor, or to another spiritual person who knows his deceits and malicious designs, it weighs on him very much, because he perceives that he will not be able to succeed with the malicious undertaking he has begun, since his manifest deceits have been revealed. And so Ignatius gives the two profiles of the person with whom we would speak, priests that we know through the sacrament of reconciliation, and whom we know to be wise and spiritually competent. Or Ignatius amplifies the profile to another spiritual person. This could be a priest or religious or layman or woman. But the key thing is that this is a person, he says, who knows the enemy's deceits and malicious designs, so that this is a wise and competent spiritual person. And if we can do that, the enemy's undone. Rule 13 and Rule 5 together will get us through any spiritual darkness we may ever face. Don't make changes in the darkness of the desolation and speak with a wise and competent spiritual person. Those two things together. I once uh, was uh, teaching these rules to a group and I said, someday I want to see a t-shirt that says, I heart rule five and rule 13. And uh, a few months later in the mail, I got a package. (laughs) One of them had, 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 had had the shirt made. I still have it. And then finally in rule 14, almost as though Ignatius saves the best for last, Ignatius invites us to recognize that, and there's no shame in this, this is just the spiritual life, lived in a fallen, fallen yes, but loved and redeemed world. There is some place where all of us are most vulnerable to the enemy's temptations and spiritual desolations. The image Ignatius uses is of one of these castles set up in in the high ground in the, the Europe of his day. A group of rapacious thieves come to try to sack and pillage and rob and destroy. And the leader astutely studies the defenses of the of the castle, the walls, the repair, the towers, and so on, and finds the weakest point, has an astute sense of that, and the attack begins right there. And the encouragement then is to do this ourselves, to look at the whole of our spiritual reality, identify Self-knowledge is the key, is always key in the spiritual life. Identify where we are most vulnerable, and we'll note that by noting the place where we most often get discouraged or tripped up. I'm stopping here because I think it's really important when we speak of self-knowledge. Self-knowledge can feel a little daunting. Not the most comfortable thing in the world, but I guess I need to do it. No. Self-knowledge is the most beautiful thing in the world because When we come to know ourselves according to our truth, we discover ourselves as beloved sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. That's our deepest identity. In Jesus, we are adopted sons and daughters. We are brought into that life. We are loved. There is a beautiful line from the Catholic existentialist philosopher Gabriel Marcel, which is the deepest truth of our lives. I've never forgotten it. To be is to be loved. To be is to be loved. If I exist, it's only because I was loved into existence and I am loved at every moment. And the desire in the lover with the capital L in God's heart is that that love relationship continue for eternity. So self-knowledge is the most beautiful thing in the world. It's like the thrill when you realize he really loves me. She really loves me. And I know it now. That's what self-knowledge is most deeply. 
And because of that, then once we know that deepest identity, then everything in us wants to embrace it, to be open to it, to receive it. And therefore, we don't want anything that diminishes our freedom. And that's, that's what we're looking at in Rule 14. Fourteenth Rule Likewise, he conducts himself as a leader, intent upon conquering and robbing what he desires. For just as a captain and leader of an army in the field, pitching his camp and exploring the fortifications and defenses of a stronghold, attacks it at the weakest point, in the same way the enemy of human nature, roving about, looks in turn at all our theological, cardinal, and moral virtues, and where he finds us weakest and most in need for our eternal salvation, there he attacks and attempts to take us. Where is that deep identity most vulnerable? All right, let's set to work then. So in the image, the townspeople see that place in the wall, maybe where the masonry is uh, in, in not in good repair. They strip it away, replace it, make it stronger than it was before. Now the weak place is no longer weak. So the way I would summarize Rule 14 is it's a rule which brings hope where we feel least hopeful. It's that one area where we say, well, St. Ignatius, I can see how your rules are going to be helpful in so many ways, but I don't really think this one area is ever going to change. That's the area Ignatius is addressing in Rule 14, and it's right there that he wants to bring hope. And what's wonderful is what came before it in Rule 13. You are not walking alone. You have someone you're talking with. You have either the good confessor or you have that spiritual person who that when you become aware of yourself and that area and it is like hitting a fire. It's, it's hitting something. You don't want to look at it. That's the time to, to bring that out in the light. To, I mean, 13 and 14 seem to be united in a very real way. They are very much. And I think you could actually extend that, say that Rule 13 embraces all the rules. Because in the long run, if we are going to live the discerning life and move toward freedom from captivity, I think what's going to sustain it is being accompanied. We can do a lot alone. And there are people who really have no other choice, and I want to reverence that. But today it's easier and easier to be accompanied. Even what we're doing right now, I'm sure that these conversations can serve as accompaniment for, for listeners. But anything we can do to multiply the ways in which we are accompanied is going to strengthen us enormously in living this Ignatian wisdom and the spiritual life in general. So are there ways we can get involved in the parish? Is there a prayer group? Is there a Bible study group? Are there groups that are exploring teachings like this about the spiritual life? And of course, they're all over the place today. There are so many digital resources or, 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 or recorded talks, DVDs, and, and so forth that groups can use you know, to go forward with these things. Can a, uh, a husband and wife together share this journey? Um, can families in various ways share this journey? I remember one woman telling me that she and her husband, they had either four or five young children, would do their, what they would do is at the supper table, and she said in the midst of spilt milk and everything else, they would invite their children to talk about these two questions. What are you most grateful for in today? What are you least grateful for? 
And beautiful sharings would come. It was a very simple way, actually, of introducing at that age the examine prayer, which is what it, what they were really doing. They called it the family examine. So in the family, and with reverence, because I know it's not always possible in some situations in marriages, but where it is possible, and it can be possible in many cases, um, it's a beautiful thing to accompany each other in this. Just friends in the Lord who are not trying to be each other's spiritual director. Uh, in a time of spiritual desolation, if I know that I can go on Skype and speak with a friend, or pick up the phone and speak with a friend, or FaceTime, or whatever way we we communicate, it can make all the difference. Uh, if we can re- find formal spiritual direction, obviously that's a very beautiful thing. I think one resource that we can use, um, I'd say generally speaking, can be used much more than it is being used, is the sacrament of confession. Because that is one place where everyone can find a way to speak, if only briefly, about their spiritual experience. If we find that good confessor that Ignatius is speaking about, a priest who is wise in the spiritual life and is willing to add that extra minute or two, which may be all that it will take in confession, just to give a spiritual counsel. You know, you might try this in your life of prayer. Or in that struggle that you mentioned, you might find this would be helpful. And we go to confession regularly. That's a powerful source of uh, being accompanied in the the spiritual life. To make retreats. Uh, Make an annual retreat if we can, for example. Or whenever we can. If it's just one day. If it's a weekend in a retreat house somewhere. And in the course of that, have a chance to speak with the retreat director or spiritual directors who may be provided. If, If we build a network like this so that we are accompanied then the wisdom of Rule 13, so that we're not just alone with the burden in our hearts, but there are places in which appropriately, and, and it will be different, what will be appropriate will be different in each of these instances. But in the tapestry of that, we will be enormously strengthened. In that sense of be aware, understand, take action, once that becomes everyday aspect of our own lives, then in that humility that you spoke of, you can begin to listen and hear and help others come to that that juncture too. The, the parent, just as you said, the listening parent, listening to what the other, if the child has to share, the spouse listening in humility, not so much to jump with a prideful, well, I know, and so I'm going to tell you, that doesn't help them, and it ultimately harms you. But in a humble action, just to sit back and to listen, it's amazing what God can do in that. Well, I think you touched something fundamental in uh, what you just said, Chris. I think the mark of a person living the life of discernment really is humility, because when you try to live it, you see more and more how much you miss. You know in all the um, kaleidoscope of spiritual experience going on in the changing thoughts and stirrings of the heart in the course of the day. I'll just say of myself, I, I, I couldn't put a percentage on it, but I certainly miss a lot more than I see. But I know that even that little that I see makes a dramatic difference in my life. When Ignatius' eyes were opened, how much were they open? Until one time he says his eyes were opened a little. 
There was a lot he didn't see, but what he did see was this one thread in his spiritual experience that some a set of thoughts about living in one way always left him sad and a set of thoughts about living in another way always left him feeling happy. And that was enough to, for a God to completely transform his life. In fact, Ignatius, in a letter to St. Francis Borgia, one of the early Jesuits, says, For myself, I am convinced that I am mostly an obstacle. But again, with our goodwill, which is all God needs, and our sincere efforts to learn and apply the, the teaching Ignatius is giving here, that's all God needs to, well, to do two things in our lives, to bring into our spiritual life a rich step in personal transformation toward holiness, and to make of us agents of renewal in the church, or to use the language the church is using today, agents of a new evangelization. When people uh, look at a person who is really living this, and they see a kind of peace, they see someone who goes through the, the struggles of life, but without succumbing or being engulfed in anxiety and uh, just becoming a, a burden to self and to others. There's something deeply, deeply attractive about that, and we want that. And so to live the discerning life doesn't mean getting up on a soapbox, really. There will be times when, and I've seen people do this, when people say, could you share that teaching with me? And in the home, uh, creating a group in the parish, in many ways people do that. But the deepest thing will be just the personal witness. Remember how they, uh, in the early decades of Christianity, they saw, see how these Christians love one another. We want to know more about this. That's what happens when we live the, the discerning life. People see a solidity, a peace that, uh, is, that draws them and that they, they want to know more about. This actually ties into something else. You know that in the, uh, in the culture around us now, there is the vogue of mindfulness, which is very widely spread. And I have to say, compared to the frenetic, heedless pace of life around us, of that whole effort to become more aware, I think is a very positive step. It has its limitations, obviously. It's not born out of Christianity and so on. But letting that be, and now looking at our, our Christian lives, if we live with this first step in discernment, which is just be aware, notice, get in touch with, we ever slow down enough to be aware of the stirrings in our hearts and in our thoughts. And if we use the, uh, the language of Jean-Pierre de Cassade, an abandonment to divine providence to find God in the present moment, this whole invitation of these rules is, uh, not, now let's use an explicitly Christian vocabulary focused on Christ, it's an invitation to Christian awareness. It's an invitation to awareness of the Lord Jesus working in our hearts, working in the thoughts, or if we want to use Ignatian language, uh, awareness of the good spirit, the Holy Spirit, the good angels, God's work of grace within us. And that makes all the difference. And I think in our uh, contemporary culture, it's all the more important. So just that first step alone, do we ever do that? You know, just uh, sit quietly before the Lord and become aware of the spiritual experience that's going on. 
Now, once we become aware of it, then the, the need that immediately arises, I need to understand this. So I'm feeling an attraction toward taking this step. I'm feeling a resistance toward taking that step. I'm finding myself joyful when I think of this. I find myself anxious when I think of that. What's of God and not of God? Or again, to use Ignatian language, what's of the good spirit and what's of the enemy in that? That's the second step. And of course, that leads to the action, at which point we're now living the discerning life. So yes, I mean, to come back all the way to your original observation, uh, the more we are accompanied, the uh, stronger we will be in living the discerning life. And then finally, where it all leads is captive set free. I'm looking now at an icon of Jesus who is, uh, and the tombs are opened and he is raising people from the tombs. They're being set free from captivity and an open door to a locked door that is now open and the way out. And above all, the cross of Christ, which is the, uh, the deepest source of our freedom. You've been listening to Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, take action with Father Timothy Gallagher. This particular series is based in part on Chapter 4 of Setting Captives Free, Personal Reflections on Ignatian Discernment of Spirits. You can find this book on Father Gallagher's website at fathertimothygallagher.org. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Spiritual Desolation. Be aware, understand, take action with Father Timothy Gallagher.